Good day to you, and welcome to the NPFCC Messages podcast. We're glad to have you back. Or if you're listening for the first time, thank you for checking us out. This week's podcast is a message from our series through the book of 1 Timothy. Throughout this series, we're going to examine just how critical the message of the gospel is for the church. And while this may seem obvious to some, the truth is it's easy to get distracted by the noise and the trends of this world and forget what's most important. So these messages aim to draw us towards keeping the gospel first in our lives and in the church. So be blessed as you listen to this word. Well, church, it is always great to, um, to see all of you. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here this morning, whether you're here in the room or you're with us uh, online. And, you know, like Devin said, so this morning we, uh, we begin a new teaching series through the New Testament letter of 1 Timothy. Uh, the book of 1 Timothy uh, was written to a young pastor named... I'm just seeing if you're awake, right? So Timothy was written to a young pastor whose name was, yeah, Timothy, right? And he was sent by his mentor, spiritual father, Paul, to go to a church that was really, man, it was a difficult assignment. It was a church that was struggling. There was false teaching that was creeping in uh, to the church. They had allowed the culture to adjust the way they saw their faith rather than allowing their faith to determine what was right and wrong in the culture. And the culture had become, become, was becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. They had a, a, a regime change in Rome. And this crazy guy named Nero uh, took power. And Christianity um, was being threatened in all kinds of ways. In other words, it was a lot like today, right? Uh, in, in 2011, 75% of the U.S. population claimed to be Christian. Ten years later, in 2021, that number was down to 63%. Only 40% of that 63 were Protestant. The church in America has been declining at about 1% per year, and this was going on before COVID. Three out of 10 people in America, when they fill out their census or other legal forms, three out of 10, they check the box under religious affiliation that says none. In 2007, 58% of Americans said that they prayed daily. Today, the number's down to 45%. 68% of Americans say that they attend church once or twice a year. 31% say they attend church on the average monthly. And 25% say they attend weekly. Folks, if the church is the hope of the world, then the U.S. is beginning to lose hope. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Like Timothy, we have our work cut out for us. And and, and the work that's cut out for us is to make the message of the gospel known, to bring that hope to the world. Never has the need for the church to live out our mission been so vital because we live in a world that is desperate for the message of truth. And I heard one pastor say, the situation is desperate, but maybe the church isn't. 
So let's dive in this morning and take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as we read this, um, we're going to get a sense for what uh, Timothy was up against. Uh, it's a book that's filled with all kinds of different doctrinal things. Um, it is not an easy book. One of the great things about being a church where we, you know, like to go through books of the Bible is um, we, we cover it all and we can't avoid the hard stuff. And in Timothy, there's hard stuff, um, but we're going to dive in and do our best to take a look at how we can be followers of Jesus who are true to his word, even in a world that is more and more hostile towards things of faith. And so, um, you know, before I, before I read this, let me, let me just pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that we see in Timothy's life. And Father, we pray that today through the power of your Holy Spirit, that Lord, you would teach us so that we would be prepared to share the hope that is within us. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So it starts off and it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Ma into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations other than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and sinful the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man I was I was shown mercy because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever Amen. Then he goes on, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you might fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and a good conscience 
with, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So there's a doozy. Yeah, well, let's dive in. Verses 1 and 2 kind of set up the people, right? The people. Who, who is this book from? Who's it to? Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul wants us to know that he's an apostle, right? Um, not because he took a spiritual gifts test, right? Or not because he wanted to be one, but it was God's choice. It was actually God's command, he says. Now, what is an apostle? Uh, an apostle is a, a apostle is a leadership role in the church. For for one to hold the office of apostle, um, they, they, there was three things that, that had to be present. The first was they had to have been chosen by Jesus. Okay, they had to have been chosen specifically by Jesus. It wasn't like you know somebody else got to choose. They were chosen by Jesus. They had to be witnesses of Jesus' life and resurrection. They had to have seen the resurrected Lord. And they needed to demonstrate signs of an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, hey, that Paul says that he's come and he's demonstrated his apostleship through um, mighty works and miracles. So they had to have this apostolic um, demonstration through signs and wonders. So, and, and so there was the 12 apostles in the book of Mark, when Jesus chooses them, it says that, hey, Jesus went up on a hillside, he prayed, he called his disciples to him, and he picked 12 that became apostles. An apostle means sent out ones, ones that are sent out. It's kind of like an ambassador. You take, you have the authority of the one who is sending you to do the work for the one who is sending you, right? So that's kind of the role of an apostle. And they were to take the gospel with the authority of Jesus given to them by Jesus to expand the kingdom of God through planting churches and expanding the gospel throughout the world. Now, for the office of apostle, when the last apostle died, the, the apostolic office ceased to exist, Right? Because the other guys down the road, you know, as you get generations down, they didn't see the risen Jesus, right? Um, and and you, can, you can look at Paul's life, and we'll talk about him in just a little bit, but he actually did. We, we know he did see Jesus before his death, and we know that he saw Jesus um, after he was resurrected. And that was part of Paul's amazing conversion story. Now, then there's the gift of apostle. You'll read through the New Testament, and you'll, you'll read in some of the list of the giftings, you know, this gift of apostleship. And, and today, same thing. It's somebody who is sent. I would kind of categorize that today as maybe somebody like a church planter or a missionary. I think that's what they're meaning, um, somebody who gets sent to expand the mission of the kingdom of God throughout the world. But it's not the office of apostle. They don't speak authoritatively, and they're not receiving extra revelation from God as these guys did, right? So it's a completely different thing. So, um, and then, so Paul is telling us, hey, I have the authority to write these things. And then he, who's he writing them to? Well, it says in verse two, to Timothy. Then he says, my true son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy was a teenager when he met Paul in about 50 AD at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. 
Uh, Timothy's mother was a Jewish convert to Christianity. His father was a Greek. And we're told in 2 Timothy that he was raised also by his grandmother, a gal named Eunice, who taught Timothy the Word of God and uh, really um, helped him learn, especially a lot about the Old Testament and the law. And so Timothy became a disciple of Paul, leaving his family and everything else behind. He headed off with Paul on these missionary journeys and making it all the way to Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, planting churches. So that's a little bit about Timothy. Um, Then there there was a problem in verse 3. The problem is this. uh, Paul says, as I urged you when I met you in Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So there's false doctrines that are seeping into the church. After traveling with Paul for a while, and after Paul had been arrested once already, and then kind of, we're, we're not sure exactly the time about the line, but he was released, and then he met up with uh, Timothy in Macedonia, and so Paul is busy with a lot of crazy stuff going on there, and he says, hey, Timothy, I need you to go to Ephesus. One of the things that you that might be of interest to some of you who, who like all of the um, historical and cultural things and just follow the history of the church is that at this point in the life of the church, um, the main center of the church really has kind of shifted Right? It was originally in Jerusalem, right, where, where the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and the church expands, and they all hung out there. Right? They're like, okay, good, this is home base. Well, then it tells us later in the book of Acts that a persecution arose, and kind of, basically, I look at it this way. They were all nice and comfortable in Jerusalem doing their thing, and God says, no, we got to go to the rest of the world, guys. And so persecution comes, and he just drives them out. And now the center of Christianity has really moved to the city of Ephesus. It's a powerful city. Um, it's a port city. Um, but with that, I mean, I mean, it's uh, somebody I heard this week says it was a lot like New Orleans, right? Port city with a lot of weird stuff going on. Okay. Um, it was at the crossroads of east and west. Um, it was a cauldron of competing philosophical and religious ideas. Every god you can imagine was worshipped in Ephesus. And so there became this whole like hodgepodge conglomeration where people were just taking a little bit of this worship and a little bit of this worship here and there. Um, one of the big things was um, in uh, the biggest religion really worshipped in Ephesus was um, to the goddess Artemis. And um, there's a crazy picture of Artemis. This is a picture um, of Artemis. And see all those bumps? They're not tumors. They, they were breasts. And because she was the goddess of fertility and, and she was worse. And so if you can imagine, this is, this is like the way that they worshiped Artemis was they would have temple prostitutes and it was like worship was just this giant sexual experimentation place where it was just really crazy. So that, that's the kind of like cultural atmosphere that Paul, that Timothy is walking into. And, um, and not only that, but all the other religions that were being um, worshipped there. We had a chance to go there. Um, I think there's a couple pictures here. Uh, this was the the um, 
Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the taller building in the back there was the library. I think if you advance one more forward, I think, uh, yeah, there's Brenda and I. We got to go there. And it was at the time one of the largest libraries in the world. But what it mostly held was lots of philosophical and religious documents from all the religions from all over the world. And so there was this big meshing of lots of stuff that was happening uh, there in the city of Ephesus. And so um, so it's a pagan city, this big port city, a city where pagan worship was just going on everywhere. And Paul establishes the church there. And he had established it about 10 years earlier before Timothy got there. But in Paul's absence, all of this pagan philosophical thought and everything starts seeping in to the church. Because where there's a leadership void, all kinds of crazy stuff happens, right? And so he sends Timothy back, like, Timothy, I need you to go lead because, hey, lots of crazy is going on uh, in the church there. And the only thing worse than no leadership at all is bad leadership. So while Paul was away, it just all got wacky. Um, so the main purpose of the book of 1 Timothy, as we're kind of beginning here, is really found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. It says this, Although I hope to come to you soon, this is Paul speaking, I am writing you these instructions so that, and here it is, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So he's saying, hey, here's how we're supposed to behave in the church. Here is a church that is centered on the gospel. And that's really what we want to dive into. Like, it's a church centered on the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus's life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the hope that comes from that. That is the gospel, and the gospel has power. Romans tells us the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Without the gospel, the church is just another social club. But we have the power of the gospel. And so it was all about the teaching the church how to be the church and how to be a gospel-centered church. Now, in verses 4 to 5 in 1 Timothy 1, he says this, Command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Uh, He says, hey, there's these people, and they're all about these myths and legends, these endless genealogies, and it causes controversial speculations. Today, I would just call this Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, just to name a few, right? Just a way to have lots of controversy and keep talking about all these things and mishmashing everything together. Um, So um, basically, the main heresy that was being taught in the church at Ephesus at the time, we believe, is this. It had something to do with a very strange eschatology or the second coming of Christ. Um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, um, where Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he, Paul has this statement. He says this, he says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We understand that as, hey, when we become believers, that we, are, we have salvation. And that when that happens, that just like Christ was raised from the dead, that we are raised. We say this when someone gets baptized. We're raised into a new life, right? 
But what happened here is, uh, again, it was a mix-up of some very strange philosophies that were happening in this part of the world at the time. It was kind of like an undeveloped Gnosticism, which, which means that you believe that your soul and your body really aren't, you know, that they can be, that they're separate. So you can kind of have your soul saved and do whatever you want with your body kind of thing. Kind of a weird, that's kind of at the, the core of it. Um, but, but, um, where it, where it kind of melded with this is they basically thought where, where Paul says, hey, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. They had this weird teaching that says, hey, so your body, like you, when you get saved, like your soul goes directly to heaven, right? Because he seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's, so they took that and they said, oh, that's now. That's like, we're like, and they said, and this is happening. And then, so, hey, and your body that's left here on earth, yeah, don't worry about that. Do whatever you want. So that, I mean, that's pretty ripe for a lot of weirdness, right? Like your soul's not even here anymore and you get just, you know, free license and all that kind of stuff, which in a city like Ephesus, there were a lot of options, especially when your chief goddess is all about sex and fertility, right? And so there's lots of stuff going on in the city of Ephesus. He, go, he says, hey, the, you know, the, they're, they're making up all these weird myths, and then he gets into this, like, this endless genealogy things. The Jewish people were really big on this because you had to like try to prove your ancestry, right? They didn't have like 23andMe or anything like that, so they just like went back in all their genealogy and said, see, I'm related to so-and-so who was the high priest, and, and so I'm better than you. And so you got to listen to me because, you know, I, I've, got the, I've got the lineage, I've got this, the pedigree, all that kind of stuff. And people would argue about who they were supposed to listen to based on that. And then there was the whole, like, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff, all kinds of controversial speculations. You know, I was going to say, oh, and then there's the whole mask and no mask thing, but I thought that was too soon. But there's all this, like, all this weird conversation going on. Things that don't really have a place or don't help us advance the kingdom. In fact, he says in verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal is love. The world will know that we're Christ's followers, not by all the just words that we say or how persuasive our arguments can be, but it's by the way we love one another. In fact, if you have great arguments, if you have all this other stuff and you have not love, 1 Corinthians says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you speak with the tongue of men and angels and you don't have love, then you're just a noisy gong, right? And so love is, is what is most important. We're supposed to love one another. And these guys were letting these petty arguments cause division and craziness in the church. Folks, this is why we must hold on. We, we, we must hold on to sound doctrine, to be sure. But there, there is absolutely no substitute for solid biblical teaching. But if it's done without love, then we're doing it wrong. He goes on in verse 6, he says, Some have de departed from these things and have turned to meaningless talk. I, I, I paused and thought about that in today's culture. Meaningless talk. There's a lot of that going on out there. Right? I mean, where do you hear meaningless talk all around you, you know? I mean, whether it's The View, The Five, or some other talk show, we talk too much about things that don't matter and too little 
about the things that do. And we're going to leave that up, because, and that's in your notes, but I, this is so important. We talk too much about the things that don't really matter and way too little about the things that do. We'll get back to that in a minute. See, we need to be talking about Jesus. If at the core we're not talking about Jesus and what he's done for us, if we're not talking about Jesus and the love that he has for us, if we're not talking about Jesus and his hope for the world, if we leave that out of the equations and just get into all of the controversial junk, then we're missing the ball. We have to be talking about Jesus. And that's exactly, you know, what Paul says. So, in, in first, then in verse 7, he goes into this list, uh, again, of some false teaching stuff. He says, they want to be teachers of the law, um, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And he goes on, he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law was not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful the unholy, and he has this list of sins, right? Everything from murder to lying. So if you thought you were getting out, how many of you have lied in the last probably couple years? Yeah, good, you're on the list, right? Every single one of us, okay? We do this all the time. How many of you know you're a sinner in the room, right? So, all right, if your hand's not up, um, you know, maybe we should talk, um, but yeah, we, we, every single one. And the reason we do that all the time is this. We're all in really good company, right? The church is not, you know, it, it's not a club for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. I do, I love that statement still. Like we're, we're here to continue to work on, on our salvation together. So some of these false teachers were Jewish converts in the church. They were preaching this weird mix also of Judaism and Christianity. They were telling people like, hey, yes, Jesus is good and you need to follow Jesus. You need to believe in him. But hey, um, you also have to follow all the Jewish rules and regulations. And then different sects would like pick the different regulations that you had to follow. Some were dietary laws, some were relational laws, some were sacrificial, all this crazy stuff, right? They were like, and, and what Paul is saying is, hey, no, because when Christ came, right, when Christ came, he basically abolished, that, that doesn't mean we don't have to pay attention to it, but he abolished the law in terms of, like, it was no longer the way that we worshiped, it was, it was no longer the way that we found ourselves moving towards God, it was like, hey, Jesus came and died on the cross, and because of that, we're free from the law, because our sins are forgiven. So Paul reminds Timothy the real purpose of the law was not to give a bunch of rules for us to follow so that we could try to earn God's good graces or salvation, because that was never the case, but it was to show us that we could not be good, right? We couldn't do it, even if we tried. We all know that that's the case. It was to teach us what sin was, and that we were sinners in need of a Savior, Romans 7, 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? And he says, certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known that coveting really was if the law, what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I love what Martin Luther says. It's a little bit, um, you know, to the point. Martin Luther always is. Um, especially when it comes to sin. But it, listen to what Martin Luther says in, his, in one of his commentaries. He says, The law is a mighty hammer 
to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. For it shows them their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down so they may long for grace and for the blessed offspring, which is Jesus. I mean, it's like our sinfulness, when we come to terms with our sinfulness, we're like, what do I do, right? At the day of Pentecost, when, when they realized they had just killed the Messiah, what was their response? What shall we do? Like, what do we do? Like, we, man, we have blown it. What should we do? And of course, Peter gets up and says, repent, right? Turn, be baptized, follow Jesus, all right? And so, and that was the beginning of the church, and that's always been the message, right? That we are sinners in need of grace. And so um, the law couldn't save us, only Jesus could. And now we get to the, for chapter one, I think what is really the crux of the chapter. He says in, uh, starting in verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though, and we're gonna hit, we're gonna highlight that. If, you, if you're taking notes, if you got one of the little papers, circle that. Even though, right? Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this, verse 15, so important. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then he says, of whom I am the worst. Paul looks back at his own sinfulness, and, 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 and he says, hey, even though, even though, remember several months back we, we, we had uh, the statement, even if, right? Even if this happens, I'm going to still trust God. Well, this morning, I want you to kind of take a, a look at this and say, hey, even though, because we all have even though in our life, right? Even though I fill in the blank, right? Because Jesus Christ, the, the core of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come because we were good people. He came because we were sinners, and maybe it's been a while since you've kind of contemplated that reality, right? Things are going good for you. Maybe you haven't really messed up lately, but I'm thinking most of us have. And even though, even though you have, even though you've blown it, even though you keep going back to that same sin, even though you yell at the kids and kick the dog and aren't nice to other people, you know, and even though you swear under your breath on the freeway, it's still there, Right? Paul was a Jewish scholar. He was somebody who knew the law inside and out. But his life got all messed up because he was a violent, angry guy. Because the law does not lead to grace. And because in his violence and in his anger, he persecuted the church. He killed Christians. He, just didn't, he didn't call them names on social media. He went and found them and killed them arrested them, threw them in jail. He was part of the persecution of the church until one day, one day this guy has a come to Jesus moment. One day, while he's on his way to arrest Christians, he gets chosen by God. He sees the resurrected Jesus. 
That's what you have to do if you're an apostle. <laughs> so Jesus shows up and literally knocks this guy to the ground and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he knows immediately who it is. And he says, Lord, right? I mean, he knows. And while he's on his knees and God, God strikes him with blindness and then the whole story starts and he has all this time to realize and to think about his own sinfulness. In fact, he's sent later, he goes for three years to Arabia where we believe that, that he was taught and he was just saturated in the truth of the gospel. And he came to understand how the Old Testament and the law, how it led us to Christ, right? And, and so he, he learns all that and then he comes back. And what he's saying when he comes back, he realizes like, man, I got this so wrong. And so this morning, I, I think I, I would just encourage you, like, take a moment and just ask yourself the question, like, what, what is the thing in your life that tends to be the constant separator? You know? Like Paul said, I mean, he was a violent man. Maybe you got some violence in your life. He was, he was an ignorant man. Maybe you just haven't thought about or haven't cared about the things of God in your life. I mean, what, what is it? What's the, even, what's the even though? What's the even though in your life? Even though I, even though I'm, I lied, even though I'm a, I'm a cheater, I have anger issues, even though I have wrecked a relationship, I've messed up my family, I, even though I have an addiction, even though I have unforgiveness in my heart, even though I've abused others, even with my words, even though I have worshipped other gods like money, sex, and power, even though we all have something to fill in the blank with. But even though, no matter what that is, folks, there is no sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover. There is no sin that disqualifies you from his free gift of salvation, all you need to do is believe. But it doesn't stop there. Even though we're sinful, Christ came, and it says he came to save sinners. But he didn't come just to save us. Then he comes and he invites us so that even though we're sinners, Christ came to forgive us so that, and that's the next line here. In 1 Timothy 1.16 says, but for that very reason, right, that he was shown mercy, he says, I was shown mercy so that. Again, there's a good thing to circle, so that. So that in me, the worst of sinners, the Christian murderer, even in my life, it says Christ might display his immense patience Oh, folks, do you know how patient God has been with you? I mean, he, he just longs to be with you. He is so patient. If it were not for the patience of God, we would just be incinerated. <laughs> there would be nothing if it wasn't for the patience and the grace of God. And it says, he, he, so that he could not only show, he could display God's immense patience and example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, when we become Jesus, even though we were sinners, we are shown God's grace so that, in turn, we get to share that grace with others. 
Because like we say around here all the time, we are blessed to be a... You are forgiven so that you can show other people the way to forgiveness. Even though you're a sinner, Christ save you so that God can save. And Paul is saying, if he can save me, and I used to murder Christians for a living, he can save you. And there's a reason that he saved you. It's so that you could put his love, his forgiveness, his patience, his grace on display to the world. So that we could show people who God is and what he does in a life. It's so that you could tell another sinner how to find Jesus. Again, we talk too much about the stuff that doesn't matter and way too little about the stuff that does. I mean, think about it. Think about all the stuff you talk about on any given day. Think about all the conversations that you have on any given day. Whether it be at home, at work, whether it be at school, wherever you are, there's conversations. In the neighborhood, on the sports field, at the gas pump and in the grocery store and everywhere we go, we're constantly having conversations. But here's a question for you this morning. See, Jesus saved you. Even though you were a mess, just like me, he saved us so that, not just so you could be a nice person, that's a good thing, but he saved us so that we could put on display his love, his grace, that we could tell somebody else the story of how to find their way home. So here's a question for all of us. How are you sharing your story? How are you sharing his story that has impacted your story? And I want to I wanna really encourage you, invite you, I guess challenge you. I'm not an apostle, so I can't command you. I would if I could, but would you share your story today with somebody? We don't talk about it enough. We talk about everything else. We talk way too much about the stuff that doesn't lead towards kingdom, living, and eternal life. We talk so much about just what's today and today's good today's important today is where we live but folks we need to be talking more about what it is that Christ has done for us so I want to encourage you to share your story if you have a spouse share your story with them I am blown away sometimes with the reality that some spouses don't even know their spouse's story like they assume a lot, right? We all assume a lot. That's why relationships are hard, right? We assume that we know things. We, like share your story. If, if, if you don't have a spouse, that's, that's okay. Um, it, it, share it with a friend. Share it with your life group. I hope you're in one. If you're not, we can take care of that. But share your story. Share your story. Start sharing your story regularly with the people around you. Share your story with your kids. How many of your kids know the story of how you came to Jesus? They see and they, they, they trust. They, again, they assume you are, but have they heard the story of how that happened? Man, 
man, what a place to start. And we got to talk about this stuff often. Why? So that we're comfortable enough with it so that it just kind of oozes out, so that it just slips into everyday conversation. So that when I'm at the grocery store in the post office, so that I'm talking to a neighbor or I'm on the sports field or wherever I am, that it just is a natural part of what I talk about. Our world, our culture is telling you to shut up. Don't tell that part of your story. It might be offensive. You know, oh, you're one of those people. But Jesus died on a cross to save you from your sinfulness so that you could be the storyteller. So will we take it up and will we tell the story? Talk about what Jesus means to you, what he's done for you. The hope that he gives you in the midst of of anxiety and difficulty and pain, but also in the joy and the amazing celebration of hope that we have in Jesus. Will you share the story of Jesus? It's okay to take care of business and to learn and do all these other things, but if we don't tell the story of Jesus, then where's the hope for the world if we're silent? Paul at the end of the book, you can go home, don't have time to get into it, but later he says, hey, there's these two guys, man, they got so caught up. These were guys who were leaders in church and they got so caught up in this mess and so much of the cultural stuff and so many of the trappings of the culture around them that these guys start blaspheming. They start telling the wrong story. And I would say they start telling the wrong story because they forgot to rehearse the right story. They started believing too much of the junk around them. Instead of speaking up, they were just absorbing all the junk around them, and pretty soon they're blaspheming. And Paul says, hey, I, I'm going to hand them over to Satan so they can learn not to be blasphemers. Basically says, I, we're, gonna, we're booting them out of the church, right, because they're causing other people to stumble, so that the hope is that they're going to, again, see what sin is all about and that they don't want to live there anymore, and they'll come back. But who will you share your story with today? Tell it over and over again. Like I said, so it just flows from our lives. Because even though I sinned, even though you sinned, Christ died. He bled and he died. And in God's power, he rose again to save you. And if you haven't put your belief in that story, then today come and talk to me. Don't, don't let the day go by because this is not something you want to let go. But if you have, then tell the story and bring hope to the world. And let's be a gospel-centered church. Amen? And every week we are reminded what Christ did for us as we take communion if you have your communion, um, you can kind of get that ready. Um, if you don't, um, there's if you don't, there's some around. You can grab them later if you need to. See, this is the day I forgot to get it ready, and the thing's not going. <laughs> oh, you gotta love that. Um, but again, let's uh, let's take the bread. Maybe. All right, you take the bread. I'll get it later. 
must remember that the bread represents Jesus' broken body that he shed for us. And let's take the cup that represents his blood, that blood that was applied so that we could be forgiven and set free. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, Father, thank you so much. Our words are so insignificant in comparison with the love that you've shown. Father, help our lives demonstrate our gratefulness. Father, help us to help us to not be afraid of the world around us. Help us not to get so caught up in all the other things of life that we forget that the greatest story in our lives is a story of how you have saved us, have brought us from death to life. And God, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see opportunities, help us to recognize ways, help us, Father, to simply be able to speak the story of Jesus. Because even though we were sinners, you saved us so that we could share the story of hope. We love you, Jesus, and thank you in in the powerful name of the one who has saved us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org slash give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.